There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 305. And today on the show, we are detailing everything you need to know about the -the on-the-ground work that has happened at our new Back 40 farm so far and the strategy we have to start hunting it in the coming days. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. Um, (laughs) It's funny, Dan, just as I was reading that, um, so I'm I'm here with Dan, obviously, and as I was reading that introduction, in my head, I was thinking about a comment I read recently on a, a post by Meat Eater. And I was in some video on the Meat Eater Instagram post, and someone commented, and I quote, Mark Kenyon is as dry as a popcorn fart. (laughs) 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 And and I thought to myself as I was just opening that line, like, am I that dry? (laughs) Is my voice that boring? (laughs) I don't think Uh, I'm that bad, Dan, am I? No, you're not that bad. I mean, you're not, let's be honest. You're not the wettest fart out there in the world. <laughs> no, I'm no shark, no, but, shirt. uh, but, uh, oh man, that's a way to start the podcast. What, what we're going to do today, Dan, I've got a handful of things I want to talk about, like an announcement that I want to BS with you a little bit about, uh, what's going on in your hunting world. want to give a little bit of an update on what's going on with some of my local Michigan stuff, but the the main gist of today's show, and I'm going to be leaning on you heavily, Dan, okay. um, is to put you in the podcast host seat a little bit as the main interviewer um, and grill me about the back 40. Um, you know, we, we mentioned this a little bit last week. You and I were talking about the fact that we, we bought this farm and now I am kind of being put in charge of, of trying to steward this farm in the future and make it a great deer hunting property, but also a biodiverse, high quality habitat for all sorts of wildlife. So, so that's like this charge that's been put on me. And I want to kind of get everyone up to speed though, on where we stand today, just before opening day of hunting season, because 
we did an episode two or three weeks ago um, in which me and Steve talked about like the impetus for this whole idea, like why we got a farm, why we want to do this project. And then the second part of that episode was with myself and Furter and Jake Elinger, and we kind of did a tour of the property audio tour talking about, okay, this is what this area looks like. This is what Jake thought about it. This is what this area looks like. This is what Jake thought about it. But we still have not actually talked about what has happened on the farm so far. What work have I gotten done so far on the farm? Um, and what's the game plan to start hunting it? Like there's a whole lot that's happened that we need to kind of explain to set the stage for the rest of the season. I think, um, you know, you need that first chapter of the book before you can really get into a story. So, yeah, that's what I wanted to do today is, is walk through everything that's happened that's led us up to opening day of the very first hunting season on the back 40. And, and I'll kind of talk through that, but then I'm hoping that you can poke and prod and ask questions and, and help me dive deeper into things that you're curious about too. So yep. that's Absolutely. that's my main idea. Are you Are you down for that? So you're telling me that I am going to be like, and this is in um, quotations, hosting an episode of the wired to hunt podcast kind of yeah mostly <laughs> oh man is that sent does, does the company you work for know that now i mean do they know this is happening because i i feel like some corporate guy was going to be like ah, ah, ah not oh, so fast well hell no man i gotta keep this on the dl <laughs> okay <laughs> anyone listening don't tell steve <laughs> don't tell vanilla that this goofball is is in the hosting chair no 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 it'll be it'll be fun but uh one other th- checkbox we have to hit uh, another kind of announcement thing before we start talking about big Iowa bucks. Um, I realized that last week during our radio episode, I kind of let something slip that I had not talked about in the podcast yet. And I haven't talked with you yet about on air. So we just kind of have to like just make a public explanation of what's going on. I mentioned last week that I was recording an audiobook. I still haven't mentioned to all of you guys listening the fact that I actually wrote a whole damn book. Um, So, Dan, you've known about this behind the scenes for a while now. Yep. Um, And I announced. I think you've talked about this. Well, I announced on Instagram, but there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast that don't follow me on social media. Ah, yeah. So, for those of you that don't follow me on social media, and then who heard this thing last week, like, what? What are you talking about? The basic gist is. Yeah, for the last couple of years, I've been alluding to this big writing project um, over and over again. And that was this book. I've been writing a book. It's about the history and present and future of our American public lands. Um, and so I examine all the different things that led up to the point that we are in today, where we actually have 640 million some acres of public land out here. And then kind of start exploring what's been going on here just recently, what these current events mean for the future of these places. And I dive into all of that through a series of my own stories, my own adventures on these places. So I share stories of pack rafting trips in Montana, fly fishing in Wyoming, hiking in Utah, camping and backpacking in northern Michigan, hunting in Alaska, all sorts of stuff like that is in this book. The book's called That Wild Country, An Epic Journey Through the Past, Present, and Future of America's Public Lands. And it is coming out. It is being published on December 1st. So I'll get a signed copy, right? (laughs) 
if you really want to sign copy, I absolutely would do that. Um, I still feel like that's a weird thing, like to, to want a signed copy. Like people, a couple of people have asked me for that, and I just feel like, really, you want me to sign it? Well, um, I want a little, I want a little yeah. note in there. Like Dan, you've been such a huge, gigantic, enormous influence in my life, and this book would never have been possible without you. And you know, just like just something simple like that. Oh yeah, for sure, <laughs> Dan Johnson. Every time I've come to a fork in the road, I stop, pause, <laughs> think to myself, which direction would Dan Johnson take? And I choose the opposite. <laughs> Thank you for guiding me through life. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. yeah thanks. thanks, bud. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I'll make sure to describe that in the front of your copy. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but yeah, I just wanted to like put it out there so people weren't confused. The book is available for pre-order now. You can find it over on Amazon. And uh, once we get to that publication date around December 1st, that first week of December, we'll probably do a full episode talking about the book, talking about the topic. Um, I'd love to talk about the actual process of writing this thing and how it came together and how long it took and how you actually get a book deal and how you actually do something like this. Um, I never knew about that stuff until I actually lived it. Um, and I found it pretty interesting. So I thought we could, we could kind of talk through some of that at some point as well. So unless you veto that idea, Dan, um, I was thinking in a month or a month or two, we would talk more about it. Is what it is, man. It is what it is. You sound reluctant. You're like, Dan, I don't want to talk about this. Man, I tell you what, I've all, I thought about writing writing a book once. Yeah. Too. Yeah. And then I figured, like, I'm horrible at spelling. So, and I don't like, like, I when you said audio book, and then I, I had to just like have one of those moments where you're just like, whew, thank God for the audio book coming out yeah. because I probably wasn't going to read it. That's okay. The audio book will. Uh, <laughs> the audio. You'll be, it'll either be a good thing for you or a bad thing because I narrated the audiobook. So right. you're used to having to hear me a lot. So you should be comfortable with that at least. Um, but you also might be really sick of it. So I'm not sure which that'll be for you. But uh, yeah, if, I, if I ever write a book, I'm probably going to have a different voice narrate it. It's that guy from, um, it's like 20, uh, 60 Minutes or whatever that, uh, God, what's his name? John something, but he's got that creepy voice. Like it was a quiet night in, in Iowa. The moon was rising, but little did they know a mass murder was going to happen in a small town. Like, is that the book you would write? You want to write about mass murder and like a serial no, killer? Kind of thing? No, but that's the voice that I want to narrate mine. I, I'm just more interested in that. I'm just more interested in where your mind leapt to. Like the first example for a story, that is what came out. It's it's intriguing to me. It's because um, that's all this guy does <laughs> is narrate murder mystery shows. Fair enough. I will keep that in mind for your audiobook in the future. If I if I've got any connections and I know that guy, I'll send them your way. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> so uh that's the basic housekeeping stuff I wanted to get out of the way. Just let y'all know about that book. Okay. Uh, but Dan, before we get to the back 40 stuff, you told me that you have done some deer hunting stuff, which is exciting yeah. to me because yes. the past few, I don't know, handful of episodes has been elk, elk, elk. Um, so you finally turned your attention back to whitetails. What is going on? 
I'll tell you what I got, uh, I got to get out this weekend and I, I went back to my hometown for my 20th high school reunion, which was crazy. You get to see a lot of old friends, but then you have some really awkward conversations with people that you didn't even hang out with in high school. Oh yeah. And yeah. So I, uh, I did that. But before I went to that, uh, I got the opportunity to go out and do my, my trail camera switch that I typically do at the beginning of the, of the month. But I kind of broke my own, my own rule, mm-hmm. which was don't go out into the timber in September at all, especially this late. So, but I had to do it because I just, I didn't get the opportunity to go do it. And I wasn't going to be able to get the opportunity to do it until after I got done with my mule deer hunt, which probably would have been man closer to the seven, like the 17th of October would have been the next time that I would have been able to get to that farm. So I took down some trail cameras off the mineral sites. I put them in some pinch points, some travel corridors, uh, downwind to some bedding areas. A couple of these cameras I probably won't even touch until the season's over. They're just kind of there for data collection. And then, um, the, the crappy part was it had rained a lot in Iowa. And so I had to park my truck in one spot and walk the entire farm with a backpack and tree stands on my back to go and, you know, change SD cards, put up new cameras, you know, and it just typically would have, would have taken me probably three or four hours, took me like six plus hours. And, uh, it just, it just sucked. But, uh, I got the trail cameras out, dude, I want to hear your opinion on this. Have you ever set up a tree stand and as you're setting it up, you just get these, like, I don't know, like these visions <laughs> or like this, this really good feeling about what's going to happen when you're sitting in it in the fall. Heck yeah, man. That's your intuition oh, talking. The kill, the kill set. Yeah. And, uh, yes. So I love set that this, feeling. Yeah, dude. I set this the stand up it was down it not not downwind it's not going to be necessarily but it 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 flanks this really thick nasty bedding area that leads up from a this the the river bottom right so it's like the deer come up and they chill in this bedding area but it's right next to a pinch point so what i'm envisioning is on this south wind deer cruising, you know, just cruising back and forth, back and forth all day long. And, uh, although I hate setting in a stand all day long, I, my trail camera pictures from the previous year, uh, in that same pinch point are showing a lot of mid morning activity with mature bucks. And one of those nice. bucks in, in this area is that Spencer Newharth buck Ooh, that, uh, yeah. I talked about. Sweet. So, He's got, uh, he's got potential to show up. I got a couple other deer in the area that have potential to show up and, um, man, it's, uh, I'm getting excited. That tree stand just kind of got me really setting it up and sitting in it and where it was at and what I needed to do and how I was going to access it is just like, this could be, this could be a slam dunk if the deer cooperate, you know what I mean? So, so why'd you hang it now though? I feel like this summer you were talking about how most all of your sets, you were just going to do run and gun in season. Right. What made you decide to, to get this one up preseason? Right. So the own, cause I, I want it to be a morning hunt. 
like the first time I go in there on this is going to be a morning rut hunt. It's I'm not going to hunt this stand until November. And I wanted to make sure that I got it in and I did not want to take any chances setting up in the dark. Right. I just want to be able to walk to the tree, climb up, sit down, be quiet. Yep. And so I felt I needed to get that stand in. Now, every place else that I hunt, I feel like I can get in there way uh, a lot less of uh, impact walking into it. This stand, I have to walk a ways to, and it's kind of a, a, a bigger impact on the surrounding area when I'm, when I'm walking in. So it's one of those high risk, high reward type access routes. But at the same time, uh, I really think that if I play my cards right and wait for, and when I say November, I'm saying probably not until the second week when a lot of the big dogs are on their feet. Um, the other group of guys are typically off the farm by then. And I can kind of just chill in one spot. So you, speaking of, uh, impact like making an yeah. impact on the farm yeah you you walked all over the place putting up cameras mm-hmm. hanging tree stands and stuff on september 28th or whatever um yeah. right i know you alluded to the fact you would never do this but are you not hunting still for a long ways though is, is, when you say you're not going to come back to be able to work your cameras till october 17th that means yeah. you're not going to hunt until october 17th as well so you're gonna give yeah. it three or four more weeks still yeah so i'm i probably won't I probably, I say this probably, probably won't hunt that main part of the farm until mid to late October. Mostly, mostly late October because I really want to focus my early season on, I'll still be at the farm and I might still be able to check some of those trail cameras, but I have another piece of this farm, which is mostly ag. And you've heard me in the past talk about these buffer strips that are, So, uh, I got, uh, I got a trail camera in a spot there that I checked and there's some decent deer still in that area right now. So I want to focus, I want to, I want to try to see what these ag fields are producing and what they're holding early season. If I make it in a couple times before I start jumping into the timber, because I I think that the deer right now are, are, you know, there's a, they have a wider range right now while the ag is in, while the corn's in, the beans are in, and they can just chill in these buffer strips. They don't necessarily have to leave. Uh, and then when those crops are out, they push them out. Then is when everything jumps into more of the cover, and that's when I'll probably jump into the cover as well. So it's not like there's any big rush to get into the timber because I still think these deer are n- not using the timber as much. Mm-hmm. They're and and my cameras are showing you know a lot of stuff still nocturnal. Okay, you you uh, you told us in the past about this buck uh, that you're considering centering your whole hunting season on gnarly Charlie. Yep. Any update on him? Nope. Um, I, the last trail camera picture I have of him is to, let's see, August 20 something. So, which is the same thing he did last year disappeared. Right. I got, um, 
the next trail camera picture that I had of him was in the middle of the night, late October on a different part of the farm. And then the next trail camera picture that I got after that was like November 12th. So he's shifted and I, he did the exact same thing last year. So I'm not necessarily worried about it. It's just, he's, he's made the move along with a couple other bucks that it's somewhere around, you know, this, this late August, early, no, early November, um, or excuse me, early September timeframe. There's that shift that, uh, that I've talked about and, uh, it's pretty standard and it, and it used to get me worried. I'm like, Oh my God, where did these deer go? EHD got them or whatever. But, uh, I'm not too worried about it because a lot of the deer show back up the closer to November it right. gets. Okay. Well, I will be patiently waiting to get the next picture of him. Yeah. So now here's the, here's the issue though. I, I can't say for a fact that he hasn't, uh, he hasn't shown up because, I had a trail camera spot, a trail camera in a spot that he has been all summer, but, and just like this happens once a year, there's a little piece of grass in the corner that blew in the wind and it took like 17,000 pictures. (laughs) I hate that so much. And it just, it took pictures every minute, like just boom, 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 boom. And uh, my battery and my trail camera uh, wore out. And it died and it just because it took so many pictures, such a long time. Uh, and I don't know what that, what that camera held. I still have to go through every one of those pictures and check it out because, you know, there's still deer in the background and some of them, but it's just, you never know. So I still have to dig through about 15,000 pictures. Uh, and it's, I don't know. So now here's the kick. You've got an extra three days to to look at pictures, right? (laughs) Right, right, right. So here's the kicker though. I have a four-year-old who's showing up consistently. And I mean, really. I thought you were going to be talking about your son. Oh, (laughs) no. I got a four-year-old who, very different direction than I was expecting. So I got a four-year-old on another part of the farm who's showing up very close to daylight. I mean, really close. Like the sun is still not down in, in the trail camera pictures. And so he's like showing up right at last light. And he's been doing this very consistently right next to, um, a, 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 this easy access route on the farm, but it's not, a, I mean, he is a shooter, but he's not the shooter. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm kind of conflicted because I know that if I go into this spot, there's a chance I have an encounter with him and on the, on the right wind, but I don't know if I necessarily want to go after him yet. Yeah. You know, you know what I mean? Like yeah, I want to give, it's like I that opening night dilemma I had in North Dakota. Right. Right. So we'll see, man. I, I mean, he's a, he's a big body deer. He's, he's four, he's four year old. He's got one really good side. And then it looks like he's got this gigantic fork on the other side with brow tines with junk all over it. Like he was wounded the previous year. Um, but he's a real good deer. He's mature. He's got, I mean, decent, a decent rack on him. And, uh, I don't know. Uh, we'll see, we'll see what happens. Did you know the test you got to screen it by? If when you see him walking in, he makes you go, ah, (laughs) (laughs) 
then you shoot the Dan Johnson right. test. I've been telling you about this for years. Dan Johnson test. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's typically how it works out. That's typically how it works out. Oh man, it's funny you bring that situation up though, because I kind of have a similar situation here in Michigan. Okay. Um, I don't think I've given you the latest update on what's going on on the other Michigan property that I hunt a lot. The main spot, spot where, you know, Holyfield was and where I killed Frank, all that. Um, I've got, knock on wood, you know, things can change really quick, but I've got one of the best groups of deer I've had on that farm yet since I've been hunting it. Um, There are three really nice bucks that are still on the farm hard-horned. So one of them is a buck that I saw a ton last year. Um, and he was a two-year-old though. He was a two-year-old, just a nice A-pointer. And he kind of looked to me like a small version of Holyfield. So when I first got the very first picture of him last year, I was like, oh man, is that Holyfield back? But he like, uh, regressed. Um, but it wasn't, it was this other buck and he ended up just kind of following me around everywhere I was last year. He would show up, watched him a bunch. He got injured in late October. I watched him all through November, really gimped up. Uh, worried he wasn't going to make it. So I kind of was referring to him as Gimpy throughout the season. Um, but by the end of the year, he was moving fine again, blah, blah, blah. Now he's back. He is a 10-pointer, wide, very, very white antlers. Like, they sh- they shine in the woods. You can just see yeah. them pop. Um, really nice-looking buck, like 130-class type deer, which is great in Michigan. And um, he's a 3-year-old, though. And then there's another buck, and he looks like he's a big nine. He actually is a 10, but his 1G4 is really short. So I've just been kind of referring to him as the big nine. And he also might be a deer I saw last year. I'm still not 100% certain if it's the same deer, but I I think it might be. Um, And he, again, like 130-class type buck, really tall, tined, um, just a cool, solid-looking buck. And he's been showing up a lot recently. like I've seen him multiple times when watching from the road. Um, just last night, he was out walking through a food plot that I could be hunting on opening night if I wanted. Um, but the issue is both of those deer, both are like 130-type class 10-pointers. Um, they're both three-year-olds. And in almost all of my past years out here, that would be like a no-brainer shooter for me. Um that would be if I killed either one of those two deer, that would be my, you know, second best buck on this property. Um, but because of three year olds, I just have kind of had my mindset this year on really, really wanting to be a four year old or older. Um, and I just can't convince myself that either of these deer are four. One of, one of them, Gimpy, I'm sure he's three. The other one I'm still unsure of. Um, I need to see him in person. Sometimes when I look at him like, God, he looks like he, he maybe could be, but, but if I'm being honest with myself, I still think he's probably three. Yeah. Um, but they're both great bucks. Like I don't know anyone in Michigan who would probably pass on them. It'd be very, I mean, I'm sure there are some people who do, but not many people would pass these bucks. Yeah. Um, so it's going to kind of pain me to see these deer and be like, Oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm not going to take a crack at one. But, um, but I'm going to try to stick to my guns and hold out for a four-year-old. And there is one four-year-old out here who's that Buck Tran that we've talked about. Right. Um, passed on him last year as a three-year-old. He's back. He's a really, really super cool, tight and tall eight-pointer. Just a big frame on him. Um, so I've, been, I've seen him twice 
in the summer, and then I've got a handful of pictures of him. He lives in the typically in one corner of the farm that you can't really see really well right now because uh, there's standing corn on that side. But uh, I do have some pictures, so I think he's around still. Last picture I got of him was on the 14th of September. So if he's alive still, if he made it through the youth season, um, he will be the deer I'm hunting. And uh, here in a couple of days, I don't think I'm going to go out for him opening night. I think I'm just going to do like a long distance observation sit because it's going to be like 85 here. But a cold front hits the next day. So I think I'm going to observe on opening night. And then the next two nights, it drops like 20 to 30 degrees. And high pressure and it looks awesome. So I think I'm going to take a stab for him early um, with that front. So That's awesome, man. Yeah. That's awesome. He's cool. I, you mentioned you mentioned three-year-olds. I My trail camera picks have showed me this year that the next batch, like this year's three-year-olds, are some really good three-year-olds. I got like this, this three-year-old and you could tell by his body, not mature. He is like a 160 class 10 right now. Jeez. And he is, he looks amazing. He just like this, like the perfect 10. And, uh, I, he's one of those deer that if you're having a long rut, you don't want to see him show up <laughs> because yeah. you could get a little trigger happy with him. But, um, I got a really good stable of three-year-olds this year. So I'm excited to see, like, I'm already thinking about next season just a little bit. Yeah, that's awesome. I can't imagine seeing a 160 class buck come running through the woods and then realize that it's not a mature deer. Like I just can't even fathom what that's like. (laughs) Right. And you know, like I said, man, I'm not trying to, you know, brag or or what anything about it. It's just like, this is the part of the state that I live in. Right. I'm I'm just lucky. Yeah. Enjoy it, dude. Nothing yep. wrong with that. Yep. Soak it up. Speaking of big deer and awesome bucks and all that, um, we should talk about the opposite of that, which is no good bucks, <laughs> which right. is the back 40. <laughs> um, in all seriousness, I do want to like get everybody up to speed on where things stand on that property and how I'm going to try to hunt it and what we're doing on it. Um, what we've seen so far, et cetera, et cetera. Cause I will be starting to hunt that farm very soon here too. Um, so what do you know, Dan? You know, basically that we bought a farm and I want to start at the, the beginning. Okay. Even before like th- this, because I am in the process, not it's, it's the very beginning process of, looking for a piece to potentially buy. Mm, now yes. it's not going to be 40. It is going to be this 50 or uh, 15 acres. It's 15 acres. I need to approach a farmer about it. Right. Nice. Uh, and I want to talk to them. I've already talked with um, a banker a little bit to see what I can get, how much down payment I need, all this stuff. So the first question to you about this uh, back 40 is I know that it's not just you, it's, uh, it's like a business thing as well, but what, what's the story of actually getting this property, approaching whoever you approached and, and actually purchasing it? So I will give you like a really quick cliff notes version on that because we actually, I actually record a full episode on that prob on that whole process with, gotcha. um, with Sean Kelly, who was the agent who helped me make the purchase. Gotcha. So, so I will give everybody a very, very, very deep dive into that. But I figure we're going to hold on to that episode until after hunting season. Because I think that, you know, most people at this time of year, they want to talk about hunting or getting ready for hunting. Um, talking really deep on buying land probably makes more sense for the next year. But 
at a very high level. Um, basically, right, we, we as a team decide, okay, this is something we want to do. This is how much money we have to work with. And this is the general region we are looking. And then I had a set of criteria that were important to me from like making this be a place that could be good for hunting, but then also with the other goals we have, like we want to be able to have a property that would serve as, as kind of a canvas to, to paint the picture of what private land conservation and small property ownership is like. So I wanted to find something that was representative of a wide swath of what anyone out there could have. So all that is to say that I began first just searching online for small hunting properties. I was looking at like 30 acres to 60 acres in that ballpark um, and all within like basic driving distance of, you know, where I'm at, trying to make it a reasonable drive for me to get back and forth from that property. So I was looking in central Michigan, southern Michigan, looked in northern Ohio, looked in northern Indiana, um, looked at east and west side of the state. Um and in short, wanted a property that had a few things. In Michigan, if you're trying to have a property that could hold a mature buck or two, I think one of the very most important things is having like a sanctuary type of cover available. So either one of two things. You have to have habitat that provides sanctuary, so like a big swamp, or you need a property nearby that serves as a sanctuary, like a reserve that doesn't allow hunting or a Boy Scout camp that doesn't allow hunting or, or something like that. Um, so even when I'm looking for properties to get permission on, I usually look for, for things like a big swamp. In this case, I was trying to find regions that had that type of habitat. So I was looking for swampy ground. I was looking for ground that had lots of good, thick, nasty bedding cover. Again, anything that a buck might be able to hole up into and survive a couple gun seasons. Um, wanted that diversity of habitat. So I was trying to find something that wasn't just a big block of timber, that wasn't just a huge field. Um, I wanted a little bit of everything. Um, I wanted to find something that was in a good neighborhood. So if we ever hope to see mature deer in Michigan, you usually need to have some neighbors that are on board with the same type of thing too. Um, so in all the different properties I looked at, I was constantly trying to find out about the neighbors. I was going online. I was looking at Onyx and getting property owners names and then Googling their names and trying to find out stuff about them, trying to see if they posted anything about deer, see if they were on Michigan buck pole, see if they had um, been in a newspaper article, whatever. Like there was a property I found where I did this and there was a local newspaper article about them and they'd shot two really nice bucks on opening day. Uh, so that was like a great big green light. Okay, great. These people are on board. And they were talking all about how they like to pass on young bucks and so on and so forth. So I did that kind of research throughout. Um you know, I wanted to find the kind of place where you could also have the opportunity to do a lot of different types of projects. So this goes back to diversity, but, you know, I wanted something where we'd be able to do some food. We want to be able to plant food plots. We want to be able to work with fields. We want to learn about early successional habitat, but I also want something that maybe we could do some timber stuff. Maybe we could do some wetland stuff. So again, that's the whole diversity deal. Um, and then also just thought about how it would hunt as well. So trying to find properties that you could access to hunt, uh, trying to find properties that weren't like all road frontage. Cause I don't want a 40 acre property, but two sides of it are uh, along a big highway and there's people all over the place. Um, so first I looked online for these kinds of things and I took, it took me months of looking. Um, I think I visited 14 or 15 different properties in person. 
Um, so I'd go out there, I'd walk the whole place, study the maps beforehand, walk them in person. Sometimes I'd do that by myself. Sometimes I'd do it with an agent, um, scour the internet, talk to a bunch of people on the phone. And it ended up being like a frustrating process actually, like did not go as well as I thought it would go. It was much harder than I expected. Had a couple properties sold out from underneath me where I thought we were going to be able to put an offer and that the last minute was snatched up. So, and I know I've told the story before, I think in the announcement podcast, but I was actually driving to go see a different farm. And on my way to go see that farm, which was one I'd seen online, I passed by a sign at a different property. And I stopped and looked at it on the phone and it was like, wow, that farm looks good. And that ended up being the back 40 that we ended up purchasing. Um, and once we, once I found the farm, I thought it looked good. Then I decided to call up Sean Kelly, who's a agent for whitetail properties. And he helped us as a buyer's agent. So he came and helped us facilitate like all the logistics of actually, you know, clearing all the legal stuff, making sure there weren't any weird red flags about the property, things that we wouldn't have known, um, having not having this experience in the past. And he kind of just handheld us through the whole through the whole purchase, which, which helped a lot. Um, so the, the really quick snapshot version of it is, is that that's what it took to get the place. It was harder than I expected. It took longer than I expected. Um, but, but it, it came in, we got a really fair price on the property. Um, it's 64 acres. Uh, it, it's got a nice diversity. It's in a good neighborhood. There's several different people around it that manage for, for deer and wildlife and are serious hunters. It's got great sanctuary cover with a swamp. Um, and there's a little bit of everything. There's old fields, there's timber, there's ridges and lots of topography. There's a big swamp. Um, so it has all the building blocks, I think, to make it a really cool place. Um, and that's where we started. We, we, we closed on it in, I think it was the very end of April, beginning of May. We were able to, to get on the farm for the first time. That's awesome. That's- now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know some organ the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill i had that when i was a little kid and it was a big deal organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients and as often is the case those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? 
You need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Awesome. All right, so now you have it, right? Like, what, I mean... I- you, you get a, you get a piece of property. It is now quote unquote yours, right? You're, you're the decision maker on it as far as what you're going to try to do. Did you, before you even started that, did you have to have like a little sit down brainstorming session about goals and what were some realistic expectations of this farm in year one? And then did you say, okay, well, I need a five-year goal, 10-year goal, whatever. There definitely were those types of internal conversations. Yes. Um, admittedly, I did not go and set five or 10 year, 10 year goals, uh, but definitely had ideas of, okay, what could we achieve in year one? What could we achieve in year two? What would be, where would we like things to be going from there? Um, but there, there was a lot of unique, um, logistical challenges with actually getting things done. So for me, right, like personally, I had a goal of, you know, all right, I've got a new small property. I would love to turn this into a great deer hunting property, and I would love to have the opportunity to kill a mature buck off it every year. And then for it to, you know, be able to be hunted in proper balance with the habitat for does. That would be like my personal goals. That's what I'd like to do is be able to turn this thing into a spot that would produce a couple mature bucks every year that you could hunt. Um, but then we also were trying to do some different things with the farm too. So could we also manage this place, not just to be great for deer, but also to be, um, you know, providing for the whole suite of species that might be out there. So thinking about things like pollinators, thinking about things like songbirds and small mammals, native plant life, um, a lot more than I've ever delved in deep to as well. So really in the early stages, it was like, I know how to, how to hunt deer. I know how to make a farm pretty darn good for deer. How do I do these other things? And then how do I combine the two? That was like my big challenge on the front end. And so I had a lot of learning to do. So I read a lot of books, started talking to a lot of people and started bringing in a handful of, of experts to provide their opinions on the property. But we had a couple of things that held that up even further, which were the fact that we wanted to document everything. So we needed a camera crew to film any real work that I did in the farm or any time I brought a guest out in the farm because we're trying to document this for the show, for the Back 40 show. Um, And that just ended up taking a lot longer to set up than I realized. So even though we picked up the farm in May, we didn't actually get to start until August. So for months, the farm was just sitting there. And I couldn't do anything. Like I went out there a couple of times. I put a couple of cameras out. I tried one small project that I just decided, you know, I have to get this thing done. I don't care about the filming it. Um, yeah. Otherwise, though, we had like three wasted months. So it like absolutely pained me. We had this place for three months and didn't do anything. So our off season, we could have achieved so much more in the off season this year. But just because it's difficult to line up everything it takes to do a project like this, film a project like this, document it, you know, do everything we're doing with it, um, just couldn't. So early on, all I could do is I went turkey hunting a couple of days. 
and saw a bunch of turkeys. Didn't end up killing one, but uh, there's turkeys out there. That's exciting. No other roosting. Ready to kill one next year. Um, I did that. I brought out a, uh, a local representative for the Natural Resources Conservation Service. Are you familiar with the NRCS? Uh, I think it's it might be something different in Iowa, but they have it, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's actually a national thing through the USDA. So basically these are the folks that are spread out across the country to help with agricultural producers, connecting them with various programs like the CRP program, um, also gotcha. stuff like that. So basically I connected with the guy who's in my region, and he came and walked the property with us, talked to me about what he was seeing, and then shared with us what opportunities there might be to participate in a government program. So basically there's, there's a bunch of different programs that the government puts on um, that will incentivize private landowners to do good things for their land um, but are also good for the soil, that are also good for wildlife, um, that could be good for future farming efforts. Um, and so they want people to do that so they will either help pay for parts of the work or sometimes pay you a rental payment to actually use your land for that. So you're probably familiar, and a lot of people are probably familiar with CRP. Um, basically, the government will pay you a certain amount of money per acre of land that you enroll in the CRP program. And then what you are bound to do is manage it to the plan that you agreed with the government to do. So in many cases, it's planting a blend of native grasses and pollinator mixes. Um, and you have to mow it every year, spray it every year, do different things like that. But it, it's able to put the put the ground back into some kind of early successional habitat or something different than just crops over and over and over again to help rebuild that soil. Um, so there's a bunch of different variations on CRP programs. There's something called EQIP. There's something called WREP. I think it was, which is a wetland reserve program. Um, so we were looking to like figure out, like, is there a way that we can get involved with one of these programs so that we'll actually be paid to do good stuff for deer and, and wildlife, or they'll at least help pay for some of the seed or help pay for the fertilizer, help pay for the herbicide or something like that. Yeah. Um, the issue with all that is that most of these programs require a long-term contract and require a long-term plan. So like with CRP, if you want to involve, en enroll in that, you have to do it for a minimum of 10 years, I believe. And you have to agree to a plan on the front end. So the plan would say, okay, I'm going to plant grasses in this 10-acre chunk. I'm going to plant grasses and small shrubs or something in this 20 acres. I'm going to do this in this 10. And then you might be stuck with that. So if I were to make changes that might not be in agreement with the plan, then I could be pulled from the CRP program. They might not pay me. Um, you know, I could get in trouble. So it ended up being the case that because we want to experiment and change things a lot and try new things all the time, uh, just it wasn't going to work. And the fact that, you know, at some point here, we're going to give the place away. We didn't necessarily want to put it into like a 10 year contract, give it away. And then, you know, someone else being stuck in that contract. So for now, we're not participating in those kinds of programs, but it was good to learn about it, to see what's available out there. And I do think it's it's a good thing that folks should know about. If you want to improve your property for deer and hunting and wildlife, you definitely should talk to your NRCS folks because there are programs where they will help you do it. Um, and in a lot of cases, this stuff can cost some money. So why not get the government's help to do that? And it, it's a good thing for the larger surroundings. It's a good thing for you. It's a good thing for your deer. It's a good thing for your hunting. So I was glad that we at least explored that. Yeah. Um, so 
when you first got access to the farm, right before you started talking to these quote unquote experts, you know, you know, Hey, pollinators and soil, what did you know just from walking the farm and looking at it? What did you think that the farm needed right off the bat without any specialists help? Mm, Good question. So it's, it's kind of simple. Um, to make this place a great deer hunting farm, if all I care about was great deer hunting, it just needs two things. It has great cover in the center of the property. It's got this great swamp. It's got great topography. It has that. So it basically needed a, it needed to be a spot to be left alone. So it needed a spot where you know these bucks aren't going to be spooked all the time. And then it needed food. It had no food on it right now. So I knew that if I kept this area, if I kept bucks feeling safe in here, and if I planted a bunch of great food, and then one other thing, you could make this into a great farm. The one other thing was that right now there's these six old fields in the property. You have to be able to get in and out of the farm without spooking deer to be able to hunt it well. Currently, excuse me, once the leaves come down and the weedy fields open up, you're kind of left out to hang in some spots around these fields. Even if you're trying to walk the outside edges of the property, if you have food planted in the middle of these fields, deer are going to be feeding them in the evening or feeding them in the early morning and you're spook them coming in and out. So the trick with this whole property was getting enough food in here to make deer use it and to have deer coming in and out and become patternable, but somehow do that in such a way that you're not spooking deer every time you try to hunt them. That was like the one big trick to the place. And so it's wide open. It's wide open. Kind of. Like, I mean, it, it, they're yeah. overgrown fields. So like every, as of right now, most of these fields are four to six feet tall in weeds and very thick. And so a deer could walk through it and they would never see anyone or anything. But I think once it gets cold, so here in the next few weeks, the next month, a lot of that leaf cover is going to die. It's going to come down. And now we're going to be left with stalks. And so then it will be much more open. Now, there's a lot of rolling hills on the property, so the terrain itself will shield you. And so in a lot of areas, you can move around the outer edge of the farm and be quite shielded from much of the rest of the property just by the case you can move around hills. But still, if you if you tried to plant two great big five-acre food plots in, in the middle of those fields, there's just going to be way too much visibility. So... From the pure deer hunting perspective, I knew I had to do two things. I had to get food in the ground, but I had to get it placed in such a way that deer wouldn't be getting spooked out of it. So I needed to be able to move around the farm, around those food plots and those fields farther enough away from where the deer would be or have the deer move across the property in such a way that I would know that at certain times of the day I could move to the east and get past where there shouldn't be deer or go to the south and there wouldn't be deer at that point. Um or what I could do is I could plant screening cover around these food plots or around certain parts of the property to create, you know, walls of vegetation. And you've heard me talk about that in the past, right? Yep. Um, yep. I've used that on the Michigan farm, the other Michigan spot I hunt a lot, where I can plant, you know, like this wall of sorghum that just blocks vision. And so I tried to do that. That's the one small project. And we talked about it this summer, tried to plant that early this summer, and it was just a complete failure. It, I tried to do it no-till because we're trying to instill this whole no-till approach to how we plant, which is better for the soil and, and the water and everything. Um, but it did not work this spring um, when I tried to. So, so basically what we have now is 
our screens didn't come in well at all. I tried to replant in early August, which is really, really, really late, but I tried anyways. We got some stuff to grow, but it's not really all that tall. So I just do not know what we're going to be dealing with as far as visibility. Like, are we, how much can I hunt this place without spooking the heck out of all these deer? Because it's not as broken up as I'd wanted yet. And we don't have enough good cover that stands into the winter. Um, so when we get to next year, a big thing we'll be doing next year is trying to convert these old fields from just native or from just weedy invasive species to more native grasses to some taller growing species that will stand up straight through the cold weather. So that maybe some switchgrass, maybe some some different native cool season or warm season grasses, some different wildflowers. Probably will plant some screens, maybe plant some trees or shrubs. Um, but trying to break up these wide open fields into much more diverse and thick cover. Um, that'll be the, that'll be the next step, but just couldn't, you know, pushing all of our work into the last month of the summer resulted in us just not being able to tackle anything that large scale, unfortunately. Right. So you mentioned, you know, you haven't really thought about a 10 year plan. So is that going to affect what kind of trees you're potentially going to be planting? right? Let's say like oaks, you know, a, a tree that takes a long time to produce food. So I know there's different versions of oaks that, you know, some, some produce uh, acorns earlier as opposed to a 25 year uh, stand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that we will try to still be making decisions with the long term in view, even if we're not going to be the ones benefiting from it, I, I still think, you know, you always hear when's the best time to plant a tree, you know, yesterday or today. Um, even if I'm not going to benefit from a great big oak dropping acorns, you know, we're still trying to set the foundation for this place to be really special, whether it's five years from now or 50 years from now, I'd like to say that we're doing things that will be good for, for any timeline. So, so yeah, I think next year I will definitely be looking at short-term mass producers. So some quick growing, you know, apple trees or things like that, or I've even looked at getting some that are already pretty well grown that you can move in some big ones and get them, you know, get a big hole dug and transplant it with equipment. Um, maybe there'll be the opportunity to try a couple, a couple things like that. But yes, we'll mostly have to be planting mass trees or whatever kind of tree, knowing that it'll be years and years and years and years before it'll produce food or any really significant wildlife value. Um, but we're just going to balance that with projects that do have immediate impact. So we'll be doing some things that'll be long plays that'll be for the future folks. And there'll be some things that are immediate plays like simply planting a food plot. That's something that's going to help us today. So we had to do some stuff like that. Um, so it's kind of that balancing act, trying to figure out what's going to be good in the long term, what's going to help us now. So I know that, um, you know, when, when people get into uh, a scenario like you guys and they start doing uh, this, this habitat work, you know, some habitat work overlaps for different species. Like if I plant, if I plant a CRP field, then it's going to be good for the deer, but it's also going to potentially be good for, you know, some other upland birds, pollinators, whatever. Did you guys sit down and have a conversation like, okay, I'm a deer hunter. So the habitat is going to be deer first and turkey second and, you know, pheasants third or whatever, or because 
you know, if you have a priority of species, it may, it may help you determine what habitat, uh, project that you want to do. And let's say if you plant trees, it may not be good. And this is all hypothetical. Of course Mm -hmm. If you plant, if you plant trees, it may not be good for the pheasant population, or if you plant more CRP, uh, it may still remain wide open. Right. We have not set a absolute prioritized list of species. Um, but we have kind of set the high level goal. Now, again, we haven't figured out how to quantify this, but we want to manage for biodiversity and native wildlife and plant life while also putting a priority on deer hunting. So, so can we bring those two things together? So I'm always thinking about deer hunting, which is the main type of hunting, right? We'll turkey hunt, we'll do some small game hunting, but the main thing is going to be deer. So everything always passes through that filter because that requires the most strategy around it, putting things in specific places, organizing them in a certain way, putting this in the front and this in the back or things like that. That will matter from a deer perspective. But like you said, we can then also think about, okay, what are the types of habitat that all these other species need? And then you can think about, okay, where, how can we get those types of habitat in places that it helps the deer hunting while also still managing these all, all this, the presence of all these other species? So, for example, there is the goal of doing something on this farm to promote pollinator life, right? They need flowers. They need high-quality food sources, and, and pollinators are struggling across the nation right now. There's a lot of issues with insects, bees, butterflies, um, populations plummeting. So I knew we wanted to go into this and think about ways we can help pollinators on this property. Now, at the same time, when I look at the farm from a deer hunting perspective, right now I can see that there's two big old fields that are in the front of the property closest to the road. I call this spot the panhandle. You can't get in or out of the farm without walking through these two fields. There's this narrow strip of land that approaches the road. It's the only access point. It's the only, only road frontage. So I know I have to come in and out every single time I hunt the property. Because of that, it would be really hard to plant any kind of deer food up in those fields, like a big food plot or something, without spooking deer all the time. Because you'd always be walking within like 50 yards of them. So this was a big flashing light to me. Like, hey, here's 10 acres that you can't do much from a strategic deer hunting perspective, but it's an open field. This is a perfect spot you could do a pollinator focus area that won't damage your hunting, but will provide great habitat for all sorts of creatures, especially pollinators and birds. And it's in the place that benefits both goals. So like that's a great example of how I'm trying to do these two things and pass them through the lens or the filter of hunting. Um, there'll be other spots in the farm where it is a great spot for a hunting focus, for a deer focus. So instead of having a whole field with nothing but pollinator blends and wild grasses, I will put in a, a focused food source, like a food plot. Um, there's another challenging uh, situation where there's one corner of the farm where there's really interesting ridge system. In this ridge system, there's a bunch of grasses, cedars, autumn olive trees, oak trees. It is a dynamite hunting spot. Like it's a perfect transition area coming out of the swamp. You get into this like kind of scattered patchy cover. It's just tore up with old rubs and scrapes. Like I'm going to kill a buck there, I think. If I'm going to kill a buck on this farm, that's probably the best spot, the most likely spot it could happen. But at the same time, we brought in an ecologist, um, a state biologist here in Michigan, and he looked at that area 
and he saw that it was a native, it was actually a remnant prairie ecosystem from hundreds and hundreds of years ago. He said there's species here that don't exist anywhere else in the county. And he was, he was floored. He was so excited. He's thinking, this was, this is what it used to be like all over the place, but everyone came in and grazed it or tilled it under or burned it or paved over it. And there's, there's no spots like this left anywhere. This is such a special thing. And he said, you've got to manage it to restore this native prairie ecosystem. To do that, he said, you got to rip out the cedars. You got to rip out the autumn olive. You got to rip out the trees. You got to burn it all. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I would, you would completely destroy what is our best deer hunting habitat in the farm if we did that. So that's the kind of dilemma I'm faced with, which is how do I manage these two different sets of goals? And I don't think we're ever going to, I think what I'm learning is that we're never going to hit any one of these things perfectly in this situation because right. I'm, I'm not focused 10,000% just on deer. This isn't going to be perfect for deer and deer hunting. And I'm not going to manage this place 1000% just for native wildlife or native plant life in prairie ecosystems. So this isn't going to be perfect in that situation. I'm going to try to do a little for both in a way that can benefit both in some way. So we still haven't decided how exactly we're going to manage this specific example, but I think there's a way I can do some things to benefit that prairie ecosystem while still preserving the hunting quality there. And I think that's the same type of example I'm going to see in, in multiple different regions of this property as we go through it. Right. Um, and, and, and how it's going to play out in each one, I don't know yet. But, but that is the, the, the type of like mental gymnastics I'm working through right now. Right. Okay. And so we brought, you know, to, just to kind of expand off that, we've brought in a, a number of different people, and we're going to continue to bring in a number of different people who can give us these different perspectives on it. So we brought in a few people that look at a farm like very much from a deer hunting perspective. So Jake Elinger is like a whitetail habitat consultant. We brought in Jeff Sturgis, who's obviously a whitetail habitat consultant. Um, then we brought in this guy named Dan Zay, who's a state ecologist. And we brought in, um, like I mentioned, uh, Marcus, who was from the NRCS. And we brought in uh, – Ben Schlanker, who is an apiarist, and so he's looking at the habitat from a bee perspective. We brought in a birder, this guy named Pat Hogan, who looks at the place from what do birds need. Um, this offseason, when we have more time, we're going to bring in a lot more people with diverse perspectives. And So I want to get all these different ideas from all these different people that look at the same 64 acres through very different lenses. You know, They're going to put on a very different set of glasses and look at this place and tell me something. And right. and then I just have to kind of try to take a little bit from each person and see if we can make something that all together is um, cohesive, but still in the end be able to hunt it well too. Yeah. You know, talking about secondary uh, species like whitetails, I mean I, uh, setting aside whitetails and turkey, right? Those are like the two main uh, hunted species like yeah. in, in the eastern part of the United States. But have you put any thought into uh, a secondary species like what – not necessarily maybe just hunting, but what you would like to see running around on that farm? I mean uh, what we'd like to see is just about every mammal species that lives in south central or central Michigan um, being present on that farm. That would be a really cool thing. So if you could have all the main wildlife that should be in this area of Michigan present, that would be a win. Um, we, of course, can't have all bird life, but it would be really cool to see some upland wildlife again. So pheasants are, are 
kind of clinging on in little patches here and there in central Michigan. It'd be yeah. cool to see them show up again. Um, I don't know if that's possible, but I do know in this general region, there are some restoration efforts underway. So that's something to consider. Um, we're trying to get a baseline idea of, of what the mammal and bird life is right now. So I can't remember what the number is, but something like 10 or 11 different mammal species I've either seen in person or got pictures of. And then we've tracked 26 different bird species so far. So we're going to track that and, and see what that trajectory is over the coming, you know, months and years. Um, so I've got those lists going to try to just see what the trend is. Um, that's really cool that you're, you're documenting this on a, like on a very detailed scale, like how many, you said 26 different bird species. Yeah. First day we went out, we documented 22. That was the beginning of August. And since then I've have spotted four other species. Okay. So you're, you're sitting there and you're calculating. So basically how, how are you going to see if your habitat is working? If there's more of the current species or if there's additional species I think that show up? I think it should be a little bit of both. But again, I, I don't really know how to fully quantify that. I can quantify how many new species, right? I can tell you that, you know, in early August 2019, we spotted 22 bird species on this day. We could show up next year on the same day in August and we could see how many, you know, how many different species per day do you see? That might be a way to quantify it. And so do like a survey a handful of times a year and see how that trends. Um, seeing the overall number of different species trending up would probably be indicative of, um, indicative of, of a positive direction, but how you could, I don't know how to quantify the actual overall number or density of this kind of wildlife, you know, like, I don't know how I can go out on this farm and tell you that we have more birds than we had a year ago in general, yeah. other than by those couple of things I said, or the same thing with bugs. Um, it's going to have to be a little bit subjective. It's going to have to be a little bit, you know, we, we've tried to document very well what this place looks and feels like at the beginning. And then hopefully we can come back towards the end of the project and get an idea of how it looks and feels and what you see and what you experience out there. And hopefully it feels and looks and um, plays out very differently. And that would be hopefully in the observations of wildlife and the documentation of bird life in the diversity of plant life species in certain places and the adherence to what certain types of ecosystems should be like. So in our wetland, you know, in a perfect world, hopefully we're able to remove some of the invasive species that are in there. And if we were able to do that, that would increase the amount of standing water that's left in this area, which maybe would lead to more ducks maybe using the area or different things like that. So hopefully in each one of these little zones, we'll be able to see a positive direction too. So that native prairie area, hopefully we'll be able to see that be have even more diversity of, of remnant prairie species. Um, in some of these big old open fields, hopefully we'll go from just having like two species of plants in a square meter to 10 species of plants in a square meter. Um, those types of smaller scale goals or, or, or observations, I think will probably start telling us that we're moving in the right direction. Okay. So with all that said, the habitat's great, right? You're still a deer hunter at heart. Are you going to try to let the, the let nature do most of the work in feeding the whitetails or how have you guys made the decision, um, to 
on this 64 acres, how much will be designated to your to your standard food plot. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Yeah, so we definitely decided that additional food is necessary. Um, these old fields are mostly invasive mare's tail, which is... A junk weed. It provides almost no wildlife cover, almost no wildlife nutrition. Um, it's just kind of junk and deer aren't going to feed on it very much from what I understand. So we definitely wanted to have some supplemental food that would a help deer from a health perspective, but then absolutely not ashamed to say it at all. Like it's going to help us a big way in a hunting way. Like we need something that's going to move deer across the farm or to stay and hang out on our farm. Um, when they otherwise would not, if we had nothing in there, right? If we didn't, we'd have some cover deer would pass through for sure, but they'd be in and out and off to the neighbors very quickly. Um, and then a mature buck might never walk around in daylight in these spots. If he's just going to hang out in the, in the cover, if there was one and then a dark head off to a neighbor in cornfield or something. So definitely want to get some food in this year. That was like the one project we had time to do. Cause basically what the timeline looked like is in early August in like the first two weeks of August, we were able to get a camera crew out and we were able to document some of these tours. So we had the birder, we had the bee guy, we had a couple of colleges, we had the consultants come out, we had Steve come out. And so we got like the tours of the farm as it was that got done the first two weeks. And then we basically had like seven, eight, nine days after that to try to get some work done. That's right. not a lot of time to get any kind of real work done. Um, but we were able to, get some food plots planted and we were able to 
get it set up to hunt decent for the first season. That's kind of all we were able to get done in that short amount of time. So yes, we planted probably an acre and a half to two acres of food spread out across these six old fields in a strategic way that would hopefully keep deer in the center of the farm, um, moving across the farm in a way that there'd be deer movement that we could see and hunt, but leaving gaps in certain spots that would allow us to get in and out to hunt them without spooking the deer. So that was kind of the whole gist with the food plots is how do we place them in these spots to do that? So they're narrow food plots. They're, they're long and narrow food plots and they're tucked into like the low hills and valleys and bowls in the terrain so that they're mostly visually hidden. Um, and they kind of extend out of the swampy cover and across these hills down in the low spots on both sides of the swamp. So there's like a, there's kind of, it's almost like a road. There's like a winding road that goes along the east side of the swamp. And there's a winding road that goes along the west side of the swamp. Hopefully, depending on what the wind direction is on any given day, you could hunt either side of the swamp. This is assuming it's not the rut and you're not going into the, the thick stuff yet. Um, you could hunt on one side of the swamp or the other and be safe from a wind perspective and still see deer moving out, utilizing those food plots for some portion of daylight. And then after dark, hopefully they would move off to the neighbor's farms where there's some ag. Um, that's the high level idea. Um, had a hell of a time trying to get the food plots in just, you know, I think I alluded to, uh, we talked about some of the stuff, uh, this summer, but even once it got to the to the actual work on these plots here at the end of August, had some all sorts of equipment issues, could not get, we got a mower because we had to mow trails and we had to mow these weeds down because there's some serious weed growth. Um, had a heck of a time trying to get the stupid mower to work, but we finally got that going, but that was like a whole day wasted just on the mower. Um, then I had to try to figure out how to use a no-till drill, which, I mean, you know me, I struggle with equipment of any kind. I have no farming experience otherwise, other than just like these little dinky food plots I've been able to do here and there. Yeah. Um, and then this was like a serious piece of equipment. So that took a long time to get figured out, but, uh, but I did eventually get it figured out. So we were able to plant that with a no-till drill. So that's cool because that's going to provide a lot of soil benefits that we're excited about for next year. Yeah. Um, but where we stand at the end of, you know, that like 10 day period is we, we got, like I said, like maybe an acre and a half, two acres of food. It's a, it's a blend of oats and annual clovers and wheat and cereal rye and a bunch of different brassicas. So we're going to have some early season attraction. We're hopefully going to have some late season attraction and we're going to have some species that will come back up next spring and smother out any weed competition. So what I'll be able to do at the end of next spring is come in. I'm just going to have food plots that have green growth in them already and either crimp it, which will kill what's there, which is basically roll over it with like a a big barrel of sorts. And then it kind of pushes down the growth and then I can come back in and drill in a new crop in the summer and hopefully not need to use herbicide, which is the goal. Um, so that's the food plot situation. And then the rest of that week or whatever it was, we were prepping trees, trimming shooting lanes, hanging trail cameras, making mock scrapes, uh, cutting trails, putting up ground blinds, all that kind of stuff. Um, gotcha. And that, that is essentially all we were able to get accomplished for that first season. Gotcha. So I hear that you've been busy, 
right? You've, you've, you have this project in mind. So what I, what I think is, okay, how much is this going to cost, right? Do you have a budget that you're allotted to make this as realistic as possible? Or is it kind of a anything goes type scenario? Uh, you know, we, we sort of have a budget, but basically the budget is operate as if you were on a budget of your own to me. Gotcha. So I'm trying to do this basically what I would do if this was not a company project, if this is just me. So for example, we're borrowing all of our equipment, uh, other than we bought a mower. Otherwise we're borrowing a UTV We're borrowing a drill, which anyone can borrow a drill, by the way, you can rent these things for most yep. of your local NRCS offices. You can borrow a drill. Uh, you can rent a tractor, um, from a lot of places. So we're borrowing the equipment. Um, we have paid for fertilizer and spray. Um, but I mean, otherwise we're not using any big fancy equipment. We don't have a big, huge tractor. We don't have big, huge implements other than, like I said, the borrowed drill. Um, we bought two tree stands and three ground blinds. You know, that's a, a few hundred bucks there total. Um, I prepped all the rest of the trees for saddle hunting. So that cost nothing. Um, I bought 99 cent tree pegs to get up in the tree. Um, you know, I've got the cameras I would normally be running up there. Um, you know, it's, it's very, it's very low key. It's basically just what I usually do on the properties I'm usually hunting. So while I haven't documented exactly what that costs, I mean, it is, is very much very minimalist to this point. Now, next year, when we start trying to do some more things, when we start trying to plant native grasses again, when we start trying to, you know, implement some of these different or buy trees, you know, that's going to, that's going to cost some money to buy trees. Um, it's going to, maybe it's going to cost money to buy seed. Um, we might be able to find a cost share program still with the government. And there's some other options. We're still looking into it. So main thing is that I'm trying to find ways to make it as budget friendly as possible uh, that that make this something that's within the reach of your normal average everyday person. If if, if I could do it on my own, my normal world without this being a company project, then it fits the bill for this project. And that's the the that's like the filter I've tried to pass every decision through. Gotcha. Okay. So now what? I mean, you guys have you're done with the habitat projects for this year. Hunting season is here. And have you talked about, I, number one, who is going to hunt this property? And have you guys had that discussion about what is a shooter and how many does you plan on taking? Yeah. So this is where things become even more of like a, a, a uh, I don't know, <laughs> interesting. Things become interesting um, because if I, if this was just like my place, I would have a very specific way I would be doing things in a very specific way. I'd be hunting things in a very specific, um, idea around who would hunt it. So for example, we would have gotten done with our projects at the end of August and I would have left this property untouched until October 1st, right? We always like to leave it off, off, you know, off grid for at least 30 days before hunting season. And then I'd be like really, really, really careful about every time I go in there during the hunting season, it'd be just me. I would hunt just a couple times here and there when the conditions are just right. Um, I'd be, you know, just trying to kill mature buck and then a couple does depending on what the doe population is like. But we are doing all sorts of different things with this property because we're trying to not only manage it for different wildlife, but also use it 
for different wildlife and for different people too. So, for example, on September 15th, right smack dab in the middle of my usual hands-off period, opening day of squirrel hunting season came in and Steve and Giannis showed up and hunted the property right in the middle of September, two weeks before opening day, walked all over the place. And so you can imagine like how paranoid and freaked out that would make me. So I went with them and I was cringing and struggling, but uh, it was what it was. So we squirrel hunted it two weeks before opening day, which I've never, ever done to one of my deer hunting properties in the past. So that's the kind of thing that we're doing. Um, and then there's also a bunch of different people that are going to be coming out and hunting it. So, um, we're still finalizing exactly who and when, but, uh, bringing out a somewhat new hunter in early October, who's going to come out that comes from like a research and ecology background, who's going to come out for a few days and hunt it. Um, later in October, we have another person coming out and hunting it with me early November. Another person's going to hunt it for a few days with me. And then mid November, my dad's going to come for a couple days, which will be really cool. Um, and then later in the year in December, going to bring in a couple more people, another new hunter. Um, and then I think Ryan Callahan from Meat Eater will be out there. So, so I will tell you, like being completely honest, I am stressed about how this place is going to hunt because that just seems like way too many people, way too much activity on a small property in Michigan. <laughs> it is. Um, right? I mean, I talk all the time about how I try to hunt the small properties I have access to and like how so, so, so carefully I have to do things on it to even have a chance to see a mature buck. And, you know, I, you know, I, I, it's, it's not just me. It's not just me on this farm. There's other folks, there's other goals, there's other things going on. So my task is to try to try to learn from that to try to still give us as best of a chance as possible to still maybe see a mature buck here and there. Um, and to, to document what happens, the good and the bad, I guess. Um, so yeah, man, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I will tell you, like, I'm stressed about it. I, I know that one of the goals here, at least one of my personal goals and internal, like we talked like, yeah, we want to have great deer hunting. That has to be an important thing out here. And great deer hunting means having all age classes, having mature bucks. Um, I've repeatedly stressed how challenging that's going to be, especially with all these other things going on. And, um, and I just have to fight that battle and keep on trying to find a way that we balance those things. So, so that's going to be, that's going to be like the story of this whole project though, is like, how can I figure out a way to, to still have good hunting out here while we were doing all these other things, while these different folks come out and check it out and give their perspectives and, um, I love the idea of like using this property as, you know, sharing this property with people, right? Being able to take out new hunters. I think that's awesome, but it's, it's, you know, it's give and take, everything's give and take. So I don't know what's going to happen. Like I do, I just, it's very unknown. And here's the other thing. Like I told you last week, I think it was, I did have cameras out there in the summer, did not get any mature bucks on camera during the summer. I've had cameras running in the fall, you know, all through September, I checked cameras on the 15th when me and Steve and Giannis went out there for the squirrel hunt. Still not looking good. I did get one mature buck on camera. He showed up the night before the squirrel season. So he's probably, yeah, he's probably Perfect. gone now because the, the very <laughs> next day after he showed up, we walked all over the place. And you got to remember, it's not just me, Steve and Giannis. 
it's also then like all these cameramen too. So yeah. every time you go out there with all these different hunters, it's, it's double that cause you've got these cameramen. Um, so golly stressing me right out, but, um, <laughs> but it's great, but it's stressful. So one mature buck showed up on September 14th, one set of pictures of him. He looks really big body. It's like a really big looking body deer, but not a whole lot going on from an antler perspective. Looked like, uh, maybe like a wide short tined eight pointer or six pointer or something, but it was like a very distant picture. Um, and that's it. So I do believe though, that right. We were in there so much in August, like we just blew everything out. Like, and every person that came through, right. They want to come see the swamp. They want to see this. We want to see the ridge system. So just trekking all over the best stuff. So it was just a disaster from like a pressure on deer perspective. So I was not expecting any mature buck to stick around through all that kind of crap. But I do hope that as with every little bit of me, I'm going to try to keep all of our activity as safely located as possible so as to not disturb these deer too much. So I'm going to try to keep all the early season stuff, you know, on the edges of the property. I'm going to try not to disturb this place. I'm not going to go into it unnecessarily ever as much as I can control it. Um, so I do think by the time October rolls around and we get into the pre-rut, there just has to be a mature buck that passes through here. The, the surrounding area is too good. Um, there's two neighbors that I know that have seen and, and hunted and hold out for big old deer. There's another new neighbor who I've chatted with who's interested in passing on young deer and excited to finally have an opportunity to do that. So they want better deer hunting. So they're on board. There's another landowner across the road who is like really, really, really picky about what this guy shoots. Like it sounds like he's really hardcore. So there's too many people on board and there's too good of like sanctuary cover. There's a bunch of swamp. Um, there just has to be some old big deer around there. Um, so I still have faith that once we get into at least to that rut time period, we'll get something good cruising through. I think the goal will be then to hopefully be able to take advantage of that pre-rut rut time period. And then the rest of the season is probably going to be learning the farm figuring out what our doe population is like and what do we need to do from a management perspective there. Um, I originally was assuming there'd be a ton of deer out here and that we'd have to kill a lot of does. But after seeing trail camera pictures and after sitting out and scouting a couple nights, I'm not seeing as many deer as I expected. Um, so maybe I was wrong. I'm going to kind of judge that throughout the hunting season. We're going to observe and um, plan our doe harvest a little bit uh, later. Um, and then I think next year, hopefully do a lot of our work earlier in the year so that once we get to August, September, we can let the place calm down next year and it'll be a better situation. But I have very, I have a lot of questions. I'm nervous about it. Um, don't know how we're going to manage all these different people and goals and things, but I suppose that's going to be what makes this thing interesting. Right. And I think the cool thing about this is it's, it's bringing back the joy of hunting because it's not necessarily so much about big bucks right now, right? I mean, do you, do you feel that? Because you, you mentioned you, you were a little nervous and stressed, but at the same time, I just feel like we're, a, we're able to do what we love now and just enjoy nature. Absolutely. And I think like I, I enjoy and I love seeing mature bucks. So that is definitely something that I want out there. And most deer hunters want, like we get a kick out of seeing those. You get a different hunting experience when there's mature bucks on the landscape. Right. So right. that's definitely something we want. Um, but at the same time, this is helping me enjoy different parts. So that's one part of it. But now 
like I'm going out there and I'm noticing different birds. Like I never paid attention to what the songbirds were out there. Now right. I'm like, oh, that's a catbird. That's a indigo bunting. That's a such and such finch. Um, and that's been interesting. I'm recognizing bird calls for the first time in my life. I actually know what trees are. I was not good at this. I did not know how to identify trees or weeds and different plants. Um, I'm learning that stuff now. So that's adding like a whole new color to my experience. Out there. That's fun. Um, I've never in my life paid attention to squirrels while driving around. Um, and just the other day I was driving like two nights ago, I was driving and I spotted a squirrel in a yard and I jumped. I was like, Oh, there's a squirrel. Never in my entire life would I care about a squirrel. And now I'm paying attention to that kind of thing. So, so yeah, like looking at this place from like a much more diverse point of view has been interesting. It's forcing me to learn about new things and that is fun. Um, and so because I'm a deer nut, because, and you know it, because I just obsess over these things and get really excited about trying to find a mature buck, that is still something I'm going to try to do out here. That is still something I'm going to stress over. And that's still something that, you know, we're going to be working through and figuring out. But at the same time, I know I can step back and, excuse me, got a, got a little bit of air in my stomach there. Um, I know that I will be able to take joy out of sharing this place with others too. So, like, I'm very excited to take my dad out for a hunt out here. That's going to be a really special experience. A couple of these other new hunters that we're going to take out, that is going to be a really cool thing that I'll be able to get a lot of joy of joy out of sharing this place with them, seeing their perspectives and experiences from it. Um, so yeah, there's going to be a lot of different things from this whole experience that will be, that will be fun. That will be also challenging. And I think like, that's the whole moral to the story for me is everything about this project is going to be both fun and stressful, both, you know, obvious and very complicated. Uh, it's, it's always going to be like these dueling parts of the project. That's the whole thing, I think. And if I can somehow figure out a way as, as kind of the steward, the main person in charge of this place, if I can figure out a way to balance all these different goals, all these different challenges, all these different ways of looking at it, if I can figure out some way to balance it enough that we move everything in a generally positive direction, that's a good, that's a great outcome, I would say. And, um, you know, we'll find out. Step one of that becomes reality here in a couple of days when I go out for the first deer hunt. Um, got a lot of questions. What's going to be the impact of the squirrel hunt? I would have thought if we didn't squirrel hunt it and if we left it untouched from like August 27th until October 1st or October 5th or whatever it ends up being the first hunt out there, if we'd left it untouched for that long and came in on, on that first hunt, I bet you there'd be you know a lot of activity. I bet you there'd be a good chance that a nice buck could step out. But now, after going in there two weeks ago and hunting the crap out of it, I don't know. So, well, the, the thing about it is, you may learn that what what kind of pressure actually impacts a farm. Because let's say there's no deer on it now, but uh, next week they could it could just rebound. You know, like uh, throwing a rock in a, a water, you get all the ripples. Right uh, over time, those ripples disappear. And sure. if you, you know, there's, there's going to, well, you'll see how, how long, what a fresh, what uh, pressure affects your farm yeah. and for how long. So. Which in many cases on other places I hunt, I've never been willing to risk major pressure. And so I've right. never had to really see what that looks like. So this is a, you know, it's another opportunity to, to learn. And, um, right. and that, that is always fun for me. So that's where we stand with the back 40. I mean, there's a lot to do. 
we there's there's so much so many like high like we've got a lot of high, like pie in the sky aspirations for it that we just we just didn't have time to get going on much stuff like I said so a lot of the in-depth habitat work is going to have to happen next year but this year is all just about learning we did a little tiny bit of work now we're going to try to learn what this place is like during the hunting season and then next year it's going to be getting to work so that is where we're at and uh we'll see what are, what are, what are your what are your um predictions Dan if you were to guess right now based off of the the whole outline I just shared with you the situation as it stands right now um first and foremost do you think that someone of all those different people I mentioned who might be hunting the farm do you think that somebody will kill a buck a buck any kind of buck oh yeah i think I think a buck will show up and someone will kill it. Um, not sure what that's going to be, you know, just yeah, that's I, my next I, question. Yeah. I feel somebody's gonna, somebody's, I mean, cause Mark Kenyon has uh, a different, you know, let's say, uh, you, you're taking a new hunter out. I don't think you're going to tell him, no, you can't shoot that. No. Right. So yeah. if a two year old walks out, they smoke a two year old. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and yeah, that, and that whole, we, that's a whole other thing is like the idea that I'd like to try to have this place managed in, in a something similar to a quality deer management type situation. At the same time though, um, part of that does mean like you just described examples where you want to have new hunters come out and have a great experience. So yeah, like there's going to be some young bucks killed. So I think something we'll learn out of this too is can you get away with a young buck getting killed here and there and still protect most of the yearlings and two-year-olds and get some mature bucks in a couple of years. Um, that'll be interesting to see, but yes. Um, and then your neighbors, right? Are you telling, are you going to have a conversation with your neighbors about, Hey, we, uh, you know, like we're going to really try to manage this, not only for a good ecosystem, right. But at the same time, we're going to manage for mature, we're going to try to manage for a mature buck and then have new hunters come in and kill whatever they want. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's a funky little balancing act we're going to try to pull off. Mostly protect mature bucks, but also provide a positive experience for some other folks that don't have those same goals. Um, yeah, I don't know. Now, will I kill is the a mature lucky buck? Spoon, is the lucky spoon still in your butt from last year is what I want to know. <laughs> I have a feeling that it is not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so much of my season is just set up for a lack of success as I start looking at it. I was just telling my wife this last night. I I would not be surprised if I don't even kill a single buck this year. Um, because, right, my North Dakota hunt was a good chance. That didn't pan out. And so much of my hunting on the back 40 now is – I'm kind of going to be like a guide. There's so many different people now that we're taking out. And it's fine. Like I'm not complaining about it. I'm excited about these opportunities to show people and to share this this place with these people. But it's going to be really hard for me to have a high-quality hunt when I'm you know, trying to figure out where to put this other person or where will this person feel comfortable. Or this person has to hunt a ground blind and they need someone sitting with them. Um, so I'm it's not – It's only looking, 64 acres. Only 64 acres, Yeah. Of which, you know, some of it's next to a house, some of it's up by the road. Um, you know, so only so much of it really could produce a kill. Um, so I think it's a low chance that I'll get a shot at a mature buck on that farm. There'll be like a couple handful of days that I'll probably get to do it on my own, do it the way I want to do it, have a chance. I'll have to get lucky. Um, then I'll have my main Michigan spots that I'll still get some hunts on, but not as many hunts because I'll be splitting time with the back 40. 
Um, and then my main out of state hunt trip is like a wilderness boundary waters hunt where we'll be lucky to see any deer. So I'm definitely not going to shoot a mature buck up there. I'm going to shoot anything I see that's legal. Um, and then I've got a public land hunt in December, like a muzzleloader hunt, which, which I got a chance to shoot something on that one, but that's a public land, um, hunt somewhere I've never been before and know nothing about yet. So the lucky, the lucky clover, lucky spoon in my butt, I don't think is going to pan out this year as far as bucks on the ground, probably just because of like the cards that I've, that I've put in my own hand. Um, but I think there'll be a lot of cool experiences, which, which is a good thing too. Right. Well, that's, uh, you're, you've been put into a unique position, Mr. Kenyon. Yes. Yes, I have. So I'm going to share the story as we go along and we'll see what happens. Are you willing to follow along and critique me and encourage me as needed? Oh yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And if you, I tell you what, I I was thinking about this. Um, we'll see what my rut produces. And if my rut is another short one, like what I had this year, you know, like a four day hunt, I, I may come up and do a late season hunt with you somewhere. (laughs) Dude, do it. I, I, I'm not making any promises because it's all based off of how mad my wife is, right? <laughs> so I've already drained part of her patient's tank with my elk hunt. You yeah. know, I leave this upcoming Friday for my South Dakota hunt. So that's going to be drained. And then the rest of the tank is typically drained dry by the time I'm done with, uh, you know, with uh, the, the, the rut hunts and, uh, you know, it fills a little back up. Then we got some trade shows that I got to go down to. So it takes almost all summer to fill the tank back up. But, uh, if it's, if I still have something in the tank, maybe I should come up to, uh, do a late season hunt and shoot a doe. Yeah, I was going to say, I can't promise you any big bucks, but I can promise uh, you, no. uh, I can promise you camaraderie and good food and uh, a good time. Cool. All right, buddy. I like that idea. Keep me posted. And, uh, I think we should wrap this one up and give you some time to prep for that mule deer hunt, huh? Yeah, I need it. All right, man. Thanks. And that's going to do it for this episode. Hopefully you enjoyed this one. I will just uh, remind you where you can find all this back 40 stuff we're talking about. If you go to the Meat Eater YouTube channel, that's where you're going to see our new videos, the video series itself, as well as a series of different how-to videos that come out on the off weeks in between. You're also going to find our How to Kill a Buck YouTube series on there well as well, where Spencer, myself, and Tony Peterson break down each different part of the hunting season and how we try to tackle a hunt for a, for a mature buck at that time of year, looking at actual maps and discussing where we would hunt and how we would do it. You can find all of that in the YouTube channel. You can also go to TheMeatEater.com and go to the Back 40 page there, and you can see maps of the property. You can see some additional details of descriptions of each different zone of the property. You'll see all the articles we're writing about it, more of the videos, and then any of these podcasts that are relevant too. And finally, if you're not already following me on Instagram, you got to go do that. That is where I'm sharing all like the live up-to-date things that are going on. Instagram stories I'm going to be posting throughout the hunting season. My first hunts on the back 40, it'll all be shared right there first. So check it out. My handle is, predictably, wired to hunt Check it out. Best of luck on your hunts if your season opens on the first. Um, well, if it opens on the first, you've already started hunting. So hopefully that went well for you. Good luck this upcoming weekend and the rest of the hunting season. And until we chat next time... Stay wired to hunt. 
I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins.